Good morning. Great to worship God together. A few welcomes that we have in store for us. First of all, our sister Hannah up from Palmerston North is here once again. Great to see you, Hannah. Great to have you. And then you may recall a brother named Cutler that was living in Auckland a few years ago. Well, this morning we have Loretta Gosman, his, his mother. Could she stand, please? There she is. Cutler's mom and a woman of great wisdom. She'll be hanging around today. So if any of the ladies want to have some coffee with her, she can pass on her nuggets of wisdom to you. And that'd be awesome. And also visiting from Hawaii, who know Matt and Tamara, we have Rob and his son Massimo. If you guys could stand up, please. So... Our brother Rob, it's highly likely our paths have crossed at some point in our existence because back in 1994, we both joined the Marine Corps at the same time and we're in Paris Island training at the same time, went to the same school for our service at the same time. And then in 1996 to 1997, we're also in Okinawa, Japan together at the same time. So we were talking on the phone yesterday. We just, I just started to get more hype and more fired up and more excited. And uh, so it's awesome to have you here, bro. And uh, there, I'm sure there's some connection. And he, and he brought me this from Hawaii, which I was, I'm going to wear it while we preach this, while I preach this morning. There we go. I, I feel like saying Bula, but Bula is probably not the uh, Aloha, Kiora. And last shout out to my wife, Megan, who's watching for the first time on Facebook because Lelise is at home with a little bit of asthma. So this is for you, honey. <laughs> And this weekend, also, the preteens went away for the preteen camp. I saw photos of that on Facebook. That looked awesome. You guys have a good time? Yeah, it looked great. That looked like a lot of fun. And then next Sunday, we have the CAP service, the Campus and Professional Service. They're fired up. That's going to be fantastic. And we'll have our brother Cress preaching the Word of God. And we'll also have our brother Gillen preaching the Word of God. And that's, that's Gillen's chance to really, you know, just lay it all out because the next day he leaves for Australia. So that's your call to really challenge us and, and call us higher. Awesome. Well, let, let's pray together and then we're going to read a large section of scripture. And I pray as we do that the spirit really creates a response in your mind. Often I have three points that can be shared, but often when you read the scripture alone, it does something to your mind and your heart and your spirit. So as we read a large section of it, allow the spirit to create a response in you before we have three points ourselves. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are excited to be able to worship you, the supreme being in the cosmos. And as we read your scriptures, Father, we pray that your spirit really brings to life what you intend for us to hear and that it creates a response in us, that we understand you better and clearer and that we follow your son more closely, Father, and that we, we can understand you as deep as we possibly can and help others to understand you as well. And as we read this, God, help us to really uh, hold tightly to what you have to say. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you have a Bible, turn over to Acts chapter 21, and we're going to start reading in 27. And at this point, Paul has taken a vow. He's gone to Jerusalem with a gift for the Jerusalem church, a financial gift for the church. And he's taken a vow with several other Jewish brothers based on the advice of James the elder, who says, everybody's kind of hearing different stories about you that you don't 
enforce the Jewish law. Here's my advice to you. Can you take this vow with these brothers and pay their expenses? And, and so Paul does all that with these brothers. And where we pick up is at the end of this vow in chapter 21, starting in verse 27. Let's read together and we'll continue to chapter 23, verse 11. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law in this place regarding the temple. Besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. Now, the temple had certain boundaries where Greeks were not permitted to enter, and there were signs enforcing this rule and regulation. And then in parentheses, they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul, and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great that he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Paul answered, no, that's not me. <laughs> I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak in Aramaic, they became very quiet. That's the language they would have been familiar with. However, the Roman commander is not familiar with this language. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for our God as you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon as I came into Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked, I am Jesus 
of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. And here you see the connection between Jesus and the church. Because he was persecuting the church, but Jesus says, you're persecuting me. There's an intimate connection between Jesus and his church. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. So they see this commotion, but they can't really understand what's taking place. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you must do for me. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance as I'm sure we've all experienced as we're praying. I was having a quiet time this morning when I fell into a trance. Or I threw my book at the wall. No, just... <laughs> just kidding. And I saw the Lord speaking to me. Quiet. Or, sorry, this is in red. I can't really see it here. It doesn't say quiet. It says quick. Quick! He said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing me, killing him. Then the Lord said to him, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. That's the Roman method of arriving at truth. It's a torture tactic. You flog them until they tell you the truth. So that's their intention here. And as they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, hey, by the way, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported, what are we going to do? He asked, this man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am. He answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. I was born a citizen. Paul replied, we don't really know how it all happened. We just know that Paul was a Roman citizen. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priest and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. 
Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience. Another way, you're putting me on trial, but I'm very clean in my conscience. It's actually you that are guilty. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. This is actually prophetic because ten years later, Ananias is killed. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the command. Violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, brothers, I didn't realize that he was the high priest. And there's lots of speculation, like he wasn't able to see, because some people say Paul had bad eyesight. He wasn't able to make out who the priest was, or because the ceremony or the assembly gathered so quick that he didn't have his proper robes on, so he didn't recognize he was the high priest. Or perhaps it was sarcastic, saying, I didn't realize the high priest would act like this. We don't really know what his intention is here, but he does change his attitude and respects the role of the high priest. Brothers, I didn't realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out to Sanhedrin, My brothers, I'm a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn into pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. That following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. This is intense, okay? So at this point in the story of Acts, Paul's missionary journeys have come to an end, really. And over these next four chapters, he's basically defending himself. And he's defending his ministry over five different trials. Here's the first one, before this Jerusalem crowd. Then he goes to the Sanhedrin for a second trial. Then the third and fourth take place in Caesarea before Felix and Festus. And then his fifth trial before Herod Agrippa, also in Caesarea. So he's not being able to travel around anymore. They've locked him down. And they're charging him with very important charges. And he's defending himself and his ministry. And so he's not free to move about as he had been. He can't plant churches. He can't preach to the gospel in all these different cities. But he's still preaching the gospel. Even in his defense, he's talking about the resurrection. And so the the remainder of the story of Acts shows Paul really kind of locked up. But the message isn't locked up. He's still proclaiming Christ. And we learn a few things from this this morning about this. And I pray we can all learn this as a church. Point number one is about seeking truth. Because throughout this encounter, you'll see two crowds. You'll see the Roman authorities and you'll see the Jewish authorities on the other side. The Jewish authorities, they're hostile. The Roman authorities, they're a bit more friendly. 
as they kind of protect Paul and get him into the barracks. And, and they appear to be making a little bit more effort to finding out what's really going on. And, and Luke does this. I mean, he gives this a lot of attention to make this point. Look, here's a group that is emotional and hostile and not really concerned with finding out truth. And there's another one that's a more patient and a bit more methodical, and they're really trying to find out what's going on. And so we look through this passage, consider the Jews. Look at some of the things they say in chapter 21, verse 28 through 29. They say, this is the man who teaches everyone everywhere. Like, he's just gone everywhere. And that's not a true statement. He hasn't gone everywhere in every people, but they, they're exaggerating this. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian in the city, with Paul, and assumed... They assumed Paul had brought him into the temple. Trophimus was never in the temple. He's a Greek and he shouldn't have been in there. But they see this guy in the city. They see Paul. And then later they see these four guys in the temple. And they just automatically draw a conclusion. Paul's taking Greeks into the temple. It's just exaggerations and assumptions. This is kind of a reach. They didn't investigate. They didn't try to search out the truth. They just drew a conclusion based on what they saw. Later on in, the, in verse 31. I mean, these guys are trying to, the text says they're trying to kill Paul. I mean, there's no real effort at trying to find out what's he really saying. What's really going on here? Later on in verse 35, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried out by the soldiers. Paul thought he was going to be ripped apart by this crew. And in comes the Roman, the soldiers, to help him out. Chapter 22, verse 24, 22, rid the earth of him. Man, that's such a state. Get rid of this guy. He doesn't deserve to live. Still, really not making an effort to find out what his platform is. Chapter 22, verse 23, they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. I mean, imagine this scene, right? They're like, you know, it's just like crazy looking. You know, just let me get my hands on this guy. And there's, there's such uh, an emotional, non-patient approach to Paul by the Jewish authority, the religious group. The religious. And then in contrast to this, you see the Roman and the Roman authorities and, and Paul. Paul's the guy on the left and the, the Roman guy is the guy on the right. And I asked Lelise, who do you think this is? And she said, that's Santa Claus and Jesus. <laughs> Not really. But the Romans, they're, they're a bit more patient, right? Because the, the Roman barracks is right beside the temple. And it's their position because when an uprise happens, they can squash it out quickly. So they look down and they see this guy about to get beaten and killed. So he runs out. He says, come on. He grabs some soldiers. He runs down. And, and when the, the Jews see the Roman soldiers coming down, it says they stop beating Paul. And so here, here they arrive and they start asking Paul questions. We know the commander is named Claudius because that's what it says in the next chapter. And he's trying to figure out, hey, what, what's the commotion going on? What's, what's going on? What's this guy charged with? And it says the crowd was so violent he can't even get a proper answer. And then Paul speaks and he says, wow, you, you speak Greek. There was an assumption this guy was just some kind of troublemaker. But then he hears Paul speak. He says, oh, I, I, you speak Greek. I, th I thought you were the Egyptian who 
started this revolt. And Josephus records this, this revolution that happened against Jerusalem where about 4,000 or so people came and tried to surround Jerusalem and they're assassins. They would come into the crowd and they would stab people and duck off. And, and so the leader of this Egyptian guy, he fled into the wilderness never to be found again. And so they think, now they think, here's this commotion. This guy thinks, oh, here's this revolutionary coming back, stirring up the, stirring up the crowd, stirring up the crowd. But then he realizes, oh, this, this isn't him. I assumed it was, but it's not him. It's been corrected. Later on, he's about to be beaten. And Paul asks this important question, right? Hey, can, can you really do this since I'm Roman? Oh, there's another. They were, they were getting ready to, to indulge in beating him to get truth. And I want to get to the bottom of this. Why are you here? What's the commotion about? And then it says in chapter 22, verse 30, the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. It states earlier he wanted the truth of the matter. And this idea, the, the word that's emphasized exactly is this idea of, I want certainty. It's the same word we get the word asphalt from, asphalis in Greek. So I want concrete certainty of what's going on here. I don't want to be moved by my emotions. I want to, I want to, I want to sift the facts and I want to find out What's going on? I see there's a big commotion here, but what's the truth of the matter? And after he sorts it all out, he sends this letter to Felix. He says, hey, we, we did kind of a trial. There was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. Later on in Acts, it says the same thing. If Herod Agrippa says, we've looked at the facts. Nothing is going on here. It's the exact same thing Pilate says when they bring Jesus to Pilate. I find no basis. I've looked at the facts. There's nothing going on. You guys are just all bent out of shape, right? And so you see these contrasts about one, one crowd, the religious crowd, is all emotional, all hostile, all combative. They're not thinking straight. And then you got another side of the story. They're trying to figure it out. They're a bit more patient. They're a bit more methodical. And they're trying to be reasonable in their pursuit of truth. I think there's similar reactions today about God, about the Bible, about Jesus, because if you've ever had a conversation about God or the Bible about Jesus with someone, it's bound to generate some kind of emotional reaction right. in people, right? And because you'll say, well, what do, you, what do you think about God? Well, here's what I think about religion. It's used as a crutch. It's used to control. And there's been lots of things that have happened in the name of God, in the name of Christianity. And that's why I don't follow it. It's like, wow, that's, that's pretty intense. That's, is that an emo, that's, that's, that's kind of an emotional response, right? Because what you're saying is because it was used for evil, that's why you don't follow it. But those same people use the internet. Right? I mean, all kind of crazy stuff happens on the internet. Gambling, hacking, child pornography, drug trafficking. Hey, because that stuff is used on the internet, I will not use it. They don't reason like that. And so they're, they're not, it's just an emotional response to stuff that they've heard. And they're, not, they're just making assumptions. They really haven't made a patient effort to really find truth. Or some people say, ah, religions are all the same. Without genuinely looking to see if they're all the same. They've just heard that growing up. Or, or they've studied something as a child. I've talked to countless people and they say, oh yeah, I went to a school when I was a kid. And I just got really turned off. And I said, well, you probably believed in Santa Claus then too. But what about now? 
There's a difference when you're grown up and you read the Bible. And you think about God. And, and, and so there's this emotional, you see it in, in the culture today. This kind of emotional response. But the Bible also has a warning for those following Jesus that are like this as well. They're eager to believe the worst about Paul. They haven't even figured it out. They just think this guy is taking Greeks into the temple. And this is a big, this is a big indictment for, for the religious community because they're always the ones jumping to conclusions about Jesus, about Paul, about the disciples without really trying to find the truth. They're more driven by their desires and facts and they're content at half-truths. And so Luke is saying, look, look at this is the religious group. Let us not be like this. Let us be like those who really are trying to, to wrestle through things and find truth. I've had a couple conversations with some brothers in the past couple weeks where they're, they're really wrestling to find truth. And they're doing it in a patient, methodical way, digging through the scriptures, talking to people. That fires me up. Because if you read your Bible, there are going to be some things that trouble you. If you read your Bible, there are going to be some things that cause some concern. It's not just, oh, well, it's in the Bible. I'll skip over it. No, it's let me let me find out how to arrive at what's really going on here. If you've never been to church or you've never really searched out the gospel, I would encourage you to have the second approach. Let me just patiently find out what this is all about. Let me, not re- let me not react to it. Let me not be emotional. Let me not make assumptions. Let, let me just read some of the Bible and figure out if this is true. And as a church, we must become a community genuinely pursuing truth as well. Amen? Amen. Secondly, we need to have a good defense. And that's not just because there's a basketball game today at 4 o'clock. But initially, Paul, as we said, he's traveling around, right? If, if you... Read the, his missionary journeys, chapters 13 to 21. He does over a thousand kilometers on his missionary journeys. And, and now he's settling down. And he's basically just defending himself in his ministry. And he explains why he's doing what he's doing and, and who he's heard it from. I met Jesus. And so you see that every time he preaches, there's going to be some inescapable opposition from the Jew. He's going to say something. That incites riot-like fever. And he's always having to defend his actions. But if, if you look through the way he does, as, as he does in these speeches and in the speeches following, he always makes these points of connection with his audience. Look at verse 22 of chapter 22. He, he gets a chance to talk to his audience. And until he said this, in verse 21, he says, hey, I got this message from God. And, and then Jesus said, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. They were listening to him. Because verse 22 says the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. So he had him. And he's drawing all these connections. What's he been saying? Well, if you read in the speech, he's been saying, hey, look, I was born a Jew. I grew up in this town. I was educated as a Jew by Gamaliel. Like, they, they, this, is, this is proper education. I'm Jewish. I was born and I was raised here. I think like you. And, and in fact, some of you guys know. I got letters from some of you here to go chase down Christians. Some of you signed those letters. Yeah. You guys know me. I'm Jewish through and through. And then he, he cites this 
scene where he meets Jesus. And, and if you read your Old Testament, you know that prophets are validated by this interaction with God. Think about Isaiah, who has this you know, miraculous encounter with God. And they say, okay, he, he's a prophet. And so if they had been listening and paying attention, they're saying, hey, this guy's had a serious revelation. He's drawing all these connection points. And then when he talks about Ananias, he makes some claims about Ananias in here where he says, where does he say it? In verse 12, look what he says about Ananias because else there's another passage that calls him a Christian. But in verse 12, he says, a man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. I mean, this guy, he's Jewish, and he, he's the one who came to me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. Then he said, in verse 14, the God of our ancestors, our ancestor, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to be his witness to all people. I mean... Your very own Jew that everybody knows, Ananias, gave me this commission. He was there. I'm, look, I'm not, I'm not trying to offend you guys. He's drawing these points of connection. I'm trying to show you, look, we come from the same roots. We come from the same background. But he also draws a clear line of differentiation. Hey, I met Jesus. And he told me to go to all people. Oh, we can't listen anymore. And, and so he's got this defense where he's, listen, let me explain the reason why I've shifted so dramatically. I met Jesus. That's kind of the conclusion of it. On the Damascus Road, and that, that's kind of the, the fulfillment of being Jewish, guys. That's what happens. It's all pointing to Jesus. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing now. And I'm a witness to that. And so he's using these connection points to say, yes, we're, we're, I'm Jewish and we've grown up, but... I follow Jesus. And so he's got this defense where he, he's able to articulate it. I think if you look at the past eight or nine chapters of Acts, I mean, Paul is action-oriented, going everywhere, preaching in the synagogues, preaching in houses, preaching in lecture, lecture halls. I mean, he's just preaching and sharing in the marketplace, talking, and talk, talking to Jews, talking to Gentiles, talking to everybody. And when you do that much talking... And then you get some time to sit down and reflect. You think about, was that the most effective? (laughs) This crowd responded this way. This crowd responded another way. This scripture worked for this crowd. No scriptures worked for this crowd. This approach worked. You you get some time to reflect and think, "Let, let me articulate my Christian faith a bit better. And as he gets this chance, you kind of see, you can almost see his thought process. Okay, this crowd is Jews. Let me speak to you guys in Aramaic. Oh, they're all silent until he says something about Jesus. And I think that as we grow as Christians, we have to mature in our articulation of our faith. And it it comes from being offensive. You don't learn to articulate your faith by never talking about your faith. Paul's always talking about it. And the more he talks about it, now he's able to defend it more. And, And we can't expect people... Just to come to church or believe in the Bible just because we say it's the word of God. Yeah. This culture, that doesn't resonate with them at all. Yeah. You have to think a bit more about who they are and how they've grown up. And, and it takes a better articulated defense. You can't, you can't expect people to believe in stuff you haven't thoroughly thought through yourself. You can't. 
And, and we, when, we, when we're talking to people, we have to think through, let me, let me draw points of connection. If they've grown up in a spiritual background and gone to church and are familiar with the Bible, me too, that's the way I've grown up, and draw connection points. But there was a time I made it my own faith. Then there's got to be a distinct difference. Or people from the world, you know, you've you got to find out ways to connect with different people, different backgrounds, various, various audiences. But it all happens from thoughtfully thinking through what do I really believe about this gospel? And the more you talk to people, I, I, so many times I've talked to people and they've asked me questions I have no idea the answer to. And it caused me to, man, I better study that out. Yeah. I better think about that a bit more. I better reflect on that. Let, let me study what the scriptures say because right now I really don't have an answer for that. I got, a better, I got to have a better defense. And I think that a lot of times when we study with religious people, there's, there can be lots of points of connection, but at some point you're going to have to talk about salvation. And you've you got to learn to articulate that effectively and clearly because there's a lot of different varieties of salvation out there. And you better have a good defense for saying, here's what the Bible says, and you better have it thought through, and you better reason to it, and know your scriptures, so you would present it to somebody, you're convinced and convicted, this is the word of God, and not just what I heard from the pulpit. As I think as we age, or sometimes we, we, we rely too much on what other people say. You cannot rely on me. Three points every Sunday is not enough. Yep. Not going to do it. Your defense have to be from your talking to people and reading your Bible and coming to your own conclusions. And it's, and it's constantly being refined. What I said in America doesn't work in New Zealand. What I say in the uni doesn't work for the marrieds. What I say to the, you know, you've got to constantly refine your defense. Because the world is waiting and thirsty, and if they hear the same old cliche stuff, just simply not going to work. And you see Paul, it's like a dance. He's always trying to figure out, how can I communicate the gospel? Let us become a community who really learns to present effectively the gospel. Amen? Lastly, the right thing might cause a riot. Come on, bro. Since Paul's converted, he's, he's making a serious effort to preach to Gentiles. And that's, that's what offends the crowds. That's what starts the whole stir here. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. They can't listen anymore. They get all bent out of shape, flinging dust in the air, whatever that means. And so they're all, you know, okay, we can't hear you anymore. And... They say, let's, let's rid the earth of him. Claudius comes in and rescues him. Then when he speaks to the Sanhedrin, there's Pharisees and Sadducees. Again, Paul kind of knowing his audience, knows the Pharisees believe in the resurrection. He says, I believe in the resurrection. There's a point of connection. We, we put, and, it, and it all points to Jesus. And this kind of stirs up the crowd as well. But over and over, despite like, I mean, mobs pulling at him, he always is going to do the right thing. And when he does the right thing, it often creates a riot. I'm going to preach. I'm, I'm going to talk about Gentiles, even though that offends you. Even though you don't agree with it. Even though you don't like it. Over and over, he doesn't back down from doing the right thing. I was reading this book about the World War. And it says this, that uh, in the 30s, you know, Germany is, is kind of growing and gaining its confidence. And, and because of World War I, 
they were a bit hesitant to, to make some stands. And there's a prime minister, and, and maybe many of you know this, but, and by the way, this is all hindsight. It's easier to make commentary in the future, right? This isn't criticized. It is just historical kind of commentary. But there's this prime minister, Neville Chamberlain, who says, okay, let's sign an agreement. Hitler says he's going to take a little bit of Czechoslovakia, and then he's done. He said he's not going to do anymore. So we'll sign this agreement called the Munich Agreement, and that'll appease him, and that should work. So they do. They get together. They sign the agreement. This is a picture of him coming back, holding up the agreement. Look, we've appeased him. He said he's just going to take a little bit of Czechoslovakia. It's all going to be good. All going to be done. It kind of, it got a little bit of favor initially because, hey, that's, that's a good outcome. That's great. He comes to the palace and people say that. That's positive. But over time, we know that simply wasn't true. That wasn't all Hitler had in mind. Yeah. And history shows us that. Soon after, he goes after Poland and it starts World War II. But it all kind of centered on this. And and it's criticized like, ah, I just want to appease. I know I should confront. But I'm not. And and I think that there's there's this sentiment uh, sometimes spiritually where we know something should be done. We know the right thing to do, but we settle for appeasement. And we know it's going to come back to bite us later. And and we have to be a community who who always does the right thing, even when it causes a riot. Because often it will. And often it does. We always need to do the right thing. Society is always trying to get you to back down. Water it down. Tolerate everybody. Accept everybody. There's a difference in tolerating people and tolerating ideas. I don't tolerate every idea that's out there. That's ridiculous. But, 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 but when we say that, it gets a reaction. Oh, you're so intolerant. But that's the right thing to say. And we've got to be a church who does the right thing. And sometimes it's going to cause riots. But it has to be the right thing. I'm not just talking about doing things to gain you know, a stir. When there's, when there's something you can stand firm on, stand firm. Don't back down. Culture will react to people who take strong stances. So be it. We see it in Jesus. We see it in Paul. And sometimes this this kind of culture can enter the church. When somebody has a firm conviction, somebody makes a strong statement, all it causes is a little bit of a stir. But it's the right thing to confront people when they need to be confronted. It's, a, it's the right thing. Sometimes the right thing is confessing. Maybe you know, I know I need to talk about this. And I know the consequences are going to be big. Yeah. Do the right thing. It's going to cause something. But do the right thing. Sometimes it's confronting someone. Maybe it's been nagging and you're like, ah, oh, I just got to talk to them. And I got to talk to them. And I got to figure out what's going on here. But you know it's going to create a stir. You got to do the right thing. Sometimes it's loving those that are hard to love and they're going to say, oh, I didn't appreciate the way you said this, but you've got to do the right thing and love everyone. Sometimes it's getting help for somebody who you know needs help but won't ask for help and is going to be upset because you got help for them. Do the right thing. If they're drowning spiritually, you got to do the right thing. Sometimes it's taking a stand at work. Sometimes it's taking a stand at school. It doesn't matter. Do the right thing. I love this phrase that they bring to Jesus in Matthew 22. The Pharisees are trying to trap him. 
And they have this question. And they say this to flatter Jesus. They say, you aren't swayed by others. Hey, we got a question for you. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. They're trying to flatter Jesus, but that's a true statement about Jesus. And when you look at that, you pay no attention. It literally means you don't care about their face. Because when you say something strong to somebody, you can see their jaw clench or they kind of turn. And Jesus says, I'm going to say something. And I don't care how your face looks when I say it. And, that, that's, and so that's Jesus. I need to say things that need to be said because it's the right thing. We need to become a community with the conviction to do the right thing. Not fearful of how people respond or this culture responds or the society responds. We need to say the right thing. As we learn from Paul, as we conclude, he settles down from his missionary journey and traveling, but he's still on fire. He's not backing down. He's still preaching the gospel. And he continues to do that until the book of Acts ends. And overall, this this is a call for me, for you, for all of us as a church to always seek truth. We all get emotional and combative about certain things, but we got to be patient and methodical and search for truth. We got to give thought to our gospel, how to articulate it, not just uh, a, a series of studies, not just what you hear other people say, but what you have yourself studied and become convinced of how you can defend the gospel. And despite how other people react, we always got to do what's right. We always have to do what's right. We become more like Christ and we bring this gospel to a lost world. Amen. Amen.